We're going to look at the end of the Bible. Revelations 20 and 21 are the two chapters we're going to look at. You have, now I have heard a lot about people turned off to Christianity because of all the hellfire and brimstone preaching. I'm not going to be preaching hellfire and brimstone. I, I have, honestly, I don't even know what that is. I'm kind of curious, would it, have any of you ever sat through a sermon that you would describe as hellfire and brimstone? I'm, I don't know, I think sometimes it's a good idea, but that's not what we're going to do today. We are going to look at two contrasting homes, and this is why I've called this longing for home. Last week I made reference to C.S. Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy, in which he describes true joy as the discovery that the longing that he had, the sense of something missing, the nostalgia that he couldn't put a finger on. And he didn't become a Christian. He was an atheist until he was in his 30s. Didn't become a Christian until it finally struck him that that longing, that vacuum, that God-shaped vacuum that Rene Pascal or Rene Pascal referred to, we often uh, hear about this heart-shaped vacuum or God-shaped vacuum in every human being. Good expression, actually, because I think humans do crave something more, and humans intuitively think of something more, something beyond. Every religion or religious worldview in history and in the world today has a version of heaven and hell, um, or heaven and hell, the future. And I think sometimes that uh, on the whole subject of hell, it might be worth mentioning that I, my experience is that Christians tend to be the most squeamish about that subject. Uh, most people in the world and in history, or I, let's just put it this way, most people in the world and throughout the generations have experienced something like hell on earth. And they have lived with people that they're hoping that God, who is just, will somehow manage to steer in the right direction, and that would be hell by their definition. There is no religious outlook, or there's nothing in history among human beings that indicates that neutrality on this subject exists. Humans intuitively believe there is something more. Whatever you do in this path, on, in this life, is moving in a certain direction. Another book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce deals with this subject. It's not about divorce. I one time gave that to a guy who was in the midst of dumping his wife, having an affair with somebody and dumping his wife. I gave him that book. And uh, he gave it back to me and said, that's not about divorce. And I said, I know. But the point of it is very apropos to your situation. The story is about people who are becoming what they are. And they're becoming what they will be for all of eternity. Every decision you make, the smallest ones, makes you over into something slightly different. And through a lifetime, you end up being where you chose to be. Mark Twain, expression attributed to him and to another writer by the name of Oscar Wilde, um, it's a little bit humorous. Uh, Mark Twain was a humorist, of course, but he said, for climate, choose heaven, but for good friends, choose hell. Well, that tells you a little bit about the person, doesn't it? Actually, if that's what you consider good friends, 
and you're pretty sure that's the direction they're moving in, then that's exactly right. And that's exactly what's going on here. We sometimes hear the portrayal of hell as a angry God whacking people for all of eternity because they didn't say the right words and they didn't make the right confession and they didn't go to church in the right place or they didn't do the right thing. The Bible doesn't portray that at all. The Bible portrays heaven as the logical place, the mansions that we talk about, Jesus talked about, in my father's house are many mansions, King James version of it, if it were not so, I would have told you. You're going, I'm going ahead to prepare. And hell is portrayed in the Bible as the opposite home, the other mansion, the other place. And whatever you live your life like, choices, a day at a time, is going to be the determining factor of those directions. It's not going to be any one thing. Even praying to receive Christ is not portrayed in the Bible as the key that opens the door. If you just do that, then nothing else matters. That is a truncated version of the gospel that really misrepresents the entire story that Jesus lived, taught, and has given to us in this book. That is a feature of those who are interested in God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, gave his only begotten Son. Then he goes on to say that those who are in the light and love the light will respond to the gospel and those who hate the light will try to kill it and remove it. That's a much bigger picture than just you say the right words or sign the right form. That's a reflection of who you are. Not the cause of eternal destiny. It is part and parcel of who you are. That's why the quote from N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright has made a career in recent decades of trying to bring what used to be called Reformed theology back into the public discussion that the gospel really applies to all of life, your whole life, the redemption process that we are to be engaged in in this world, bringing light in the world, not buy your ticket and then just go and live any way you want and God's going to have to put you in heaven because you bought the ticket. See? Signed right here. That's not portrayed in the Bible. And I think it's a good idea to see the two destinies as related to who we are, not just what ticket you bought. Because you're going to buy the ticket that represents who you are, not the other way around. Chapter 20 we're going to pick up, you, uh, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, we could do a lot of background here, and I will make a few comments about certain terms that have prior mentioned here, and we're going to go right on into chapter 21. There's a description of hell, and there's a description of heaven in these two chapters, and I want to just hit the highlights, because you could spend quite a bit of time studying these two things if you wished. Chapter 20, verse 1, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now let me just mention these different terms that are used here. These are just a few of the terms that are used of Satan in the Bible, the description of Satan in the Bible, because Satan is... Um, characterized, not idolatrized, 
or worshipped in the Bible, but characterized in the Bible. Satan is a name that simply means adversary. The devil, or diabolus, diabolical, it really means literally accuser, accuser of the brethren. The great serpent is obvious. The dragon, these are representations of Satan, among many others in the Bible that tell us exactly who we're dealing with here. He's going to be locked up. And verse 3, he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Now, this thousand years uh, is a term that in Latin is millennia. You know that uh, the, uh, a millimeter is a thousandth of a meter. You can figure that out from use in daily language. And uh, this here is a Greek word, but, but it, the, the millennium, the thousand years, is the reference here. Now, I want to say a word or two about that without getting too involved in the various theories over the centuries that have developed about the millennium. And I should just say here about these terms that in Revelations and throughout the Bible, there is visionary language used. Uh, there are figurative speeches, metaphors, similes. For example, Second Peter 3, with God one day is as a thousand years, etc., but you would be making a pretty big mistake if you think then that every time you see the word thousand, it is simply figurative. Because that's not how language works anywhere. The, the clue to whether it's figurative is in the text. In the book of Revelation, when a description is, something of, is of something otherworldly, then you take it that way. But when it's something thisworldly, you take it as literally as you can. Maybe some of you are familiar with the expression Occam's razor. Simplicity. Whatever is the simplest way of interpreting something is how you ought to interpret it. J. Vernon McGee's version of it. Some of you know who he is. Um, and I'm not going to try to do his Texas accent, but it goes something like this. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Now, that is obviously how you should read the Bible and anything else. There are metaphors, similes, figures of speech, analytical language, or, or uh, uh, allegorical language all through the Bible, just as there is in daily life. Uh, you use expressions all the time that you wouldn't necessarily want taken literally. And in fact, the ability to distinguish between literal and figurative is one of the marks of sanity. I was speaking in a downtown mission one time many years ago, not here, a different place, and, um, and I always really enjoyed that because you can say about anything you want, and these guys, they, they have to be there or they don't get dinner. So even if your preaching is bad that day, it doesn't really matter. They still need dinner, so they're going to stick it out. And um, afterwards, I was talking to a guy, and he said, so salvation is like a V. Is that what you said? It's a V. I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, well, you did this with your hands when you were explaining the gospel. So I interpret that to be a, a symbolic or secretive language about what salvation really is, a V. After about five minutes of conversation with a guy, I realized I was talking to a very entertaining but truly nutcase. 
But that is the definition of a nutcase in some ways. You can't distinguish between an imaginary world and a real world. Um, that's the way you need to read the Bible too. If the references to something earthly like time, years, places, cities, whatever, you interpret it that way. That's Occam's razor. That's the simplest, most direct way to do it. When it's about something off in the sky or the spirit world like uh, dragons and uh, lions with heads and all these things which appear in the book of Revelation, then you look for the symbolism of this in the text itself. One of the keys for interpretation of prophecy, I think, would be the Old Testament. The Old Testament, you may know, in the centuries before Jesus came, there was great debate about what these things mean. The whole communities were formed about what symbolic meanings the Messiah would have. The Essene community is one, Qumran cave is associated with that, and the Sadducees had this very elaborate spiritual interpretation theories about what the coming Messiah will be. But when we look back at the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament, they are remarkably literal. There's like 300 references that, looking backwards, you can say, wow, these were not spooky and weird. These were just descriptions that you couldn't recognize because you'd never seen it before. That would be the best way to read the book of Revelation. If the description is something otherworldly, then you look for the visionary meaning. If the description of something that's something laid out in a very concise, earthly, time-based, continuum-based space and time, you look for that kind of meaning. That's what Jesus warned in Matthew 24 when he talks about it. He said, I don't want you to be deceived. This is not as mystical that you might think. This is going to happen. So the deceivers can't get you if you just look for what's going to happen. So he's talking about a literal thousand years here where Satan is going to be bound up. I don't see any way around that unless you sort of trash the whole concept of reading as it is written. Verse 4, I saw thrones on which there were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have, uh, who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now notice this repetition of a concept that he wants us to understand. There will come a time when God gives Sabbath rest to the world and there will be relief from Satan. I'm pretty sure he's not tied up right now. I just saw him on TV the other day. Uh, I just, no, oh no, that was a politician. Uh, but the, uh, uh, he, he's not tied up now. <laughs> that, that should be pretty obvious, right? But there is coming a day where he will be, so there will be a Sabbath rest, but then he's going to be released again for the final judgment purposes. That's what he's saying here. I don't see any reason why that wouldn't happen, 
but you can read all kind of literal or figurative things into it. But if we just stick with the concept, we know that we're looking at something ahead that is going to have a tremendous impact on the history of the world and on us. And verse 7, And when the thousand years were over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had already been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I think an important point to draw from this is number one. Well, maybe two points. Number one, hell is made for Satan, not for us, not for humans at all. But humans can go visit his house and stay there if they want. That's the point the scripture makes. Heaven is made for God, not for us. But we can go there if that's the path we want to be. We will go there. That's what Jesus promised. And hell is made for Satan. So it's not designed for humans. So this is not God being cranky and saying, I'm going to, let's, let's, let's get those people over there and let's throw them in hell. This is all about Satan's house, his final destiny. In verse 11, when I saw a great white throne and him was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's pretty graphic enough, isn't it? Pretty descriptive enough. And I would suggest that before we go into the description of heaven, that it's really not logically or honestly consistent to say you like the one and not the other. Because the description is found in the same place. And it's every bit as vivid for both directions. You can't just say... Oh, I don't really like that, so let's tear that page out. But this heaven stuff, oh, that's so cool. I want to go to heaven, and I want everybody to go to heaven too, and that's so nice. That's a great description. Let's, let's pick that one and throw the other one in the fire, or maybe can't simply pick and choose. The revelation we get from God is about reality. It's in the Bible because it's true. It's not true because it's in the Bible. God wasn't sitting around one day and said, let's just let's write a story here and make it true. This is all about telling us what we need to know about what is going to happen, whether you like it or not. The information is given to us. It is true because the Bible records it, but the Bible doesn't make it true. The history of heaven and earth and heaven and hell and eternity is not created by a book, no matter how godly the book is. 
The book is the source of the information that we need to know about reality. So going on into chapter 21. I want to give an overview of this. You can spend a lot more time on that, but I'm not going to today. just want to concentrate on two paragraphs of 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Well, here's the other side of the coin. Now, that's the side of the coin that I like best. But you know a coin really does need two sides to have any worth, right? If you try to pass off a one-sided coin, either, either, either you have a very rare collector's item or you've got a very stupid counterfeiter uh, who couldn't even get the other side on it, two sides of the coin, are both necessary to give it its worth. This is the part that I really like, and the rest of that, uh, let's jump over to chapter, verse 22. I did not see a temple in this city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the, lamp, uh, the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter into it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There are other descriptions here about precious stones, streets paved with gold, and all of those things. I think the descriptions are simply to tell us that whatever... You think heaven is like? It's going to be so much more. But the important thing about heaven is this. The same as the important thing to understand about hell. And that is, it's God's home. Hell is Satan's home. This is God's home. Notice in verse 20, see, I did not see a temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. This is where God lives. Now, if you aren't enjoying a relationship with God now and don't want to, if like Mark Twain or Oscar Wilde, you think, you think hell is going to be a lot more fun because your friends are going to be there and heaven might be better for the climate, if that's your attitude, you're going to find heaven to be hell, aren't you? I mean, if you don't like being with God, you don't even like the concept of God, you don't even like thinking about God, it just makes you angry whenever you hear about God and his standards and, and, and his revelation and shed blood of Jesus, all these things about Jesus, if that makes you angry, what do you think heaven would be like if you're going to have to spend all eternity there looking at it? Well, that would be hell, right? To have to spend eternity with God who you already decided you don't want to have any part of your life. Ooh, wouldn't that be kind of cruel of God to send people to the home 
of the very person they hate the most and say, now you've got to live here forever. It's kind of like when children are sick of their parents. Usually their parents are sick of them by that time too, so this works both ways. They want to leave. But what if somebody said, no, you've got to stay there for all eternity now? I know. There have been children who have responded to that in a very understandable way. They shot their parents. That, that would be the only way out, right? If you've already decided you don't want to be there and you don't like those people, we, we have sometimes have to recognize in regard to church life. And if people don't want to be in church, when, if you've grown up in Bible Belt culture, for example, South, Bible Belt South, or you just go to church, you have to go to church. But I understand, I know this from my own experience, there are lots of people in those places that just hate it, and they learn to tune it out. They don't want to be there, but they don't have the courage, the intestinal fortitude, or the honesty to actually walk away. It's actually a good thing to walk away. I've recommended this only partially facetiously, but just to carry this thought out, I think some people that have been Christians all their lives, or at least, quote, Christians all their lives, should consider being a Buddhist for three years, or an atheist maybe, or a Muslim. Develop a little understanding and appreciation for what this is really all about. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. If you ask God to give you an appreciation for his word and the truth, the people of God, he'll give it to you, give you that. But I think sometimes it's a good thing that people try other things to figure out where they really stand. And that's kind of the description of heaven. Now, one more point I want to make about this. I mentioned this last week, but I would like to reiterate this. I know that many people... um, who are not Christians, see this promise of heaven as a sort of pie-in-the-sky promise for weak people. You know, um, I'm, a, I'm a big, brave atheist. I can handle life without the crutch of God. Yeah, you're just a fool of what you are. You know, you've heard the expression, there are no atheists in foxholes. That's pretty close to the truth. The more life experience people get, the less confident they are. That's kind of a college thing to say. That, you know, this is just for weak people. Crutches. You know, college freshmen. Actually, a name for it. Sophomoric. Wise fool. Wise moron. People who've got just enough education to think they've got everything understood. But they're just too foolish to know what life is really going to be like for them once they get out there. And the more closer people are, I don't know, it's, this is, this is uh, fairly easy to, to document, but uh, sometimes people who work in professions like firefighter, soldier, uh, policeman, are thought of as being, well, I've just seen too much to believe in God. Boy, if that's what you think that's like, you don't get out enough. The fact is the percentage of people of faith or Christians in those professions is significantly higher than other professions because they've seen 
so much. That's the real world at work. Now let's take home a few thoughts that we can apply and think about through the week from this overview of uh, the two homes. Number one, the Bible informs us of the future but does not create the future. It'll happen whether or not we read or believe this information. I've already made this point, but I want to add one thing to it. I think sometimes we spend a lot, too much time trying to excuse God, explain God, apologize for God, or apologize for the Bible. You know, one of the problems with that is I, most non-Christians don't find anything illogical about this stuff. They're not turned off by it. Most people in the world find all this talk about judgment and just desserts very appealing, very close to how they actually live life. It's people who've lived in a sheltered world that have trouble with these concepts that this is actually going to happen. And I think we should just give up on that. Let's, uh, this, is, this is the real world, and I think it's a good thing that we address it and we let God address it. Number two, God has given us enough information to live successfully and to know him. No more and no less. I don't think there's a lot of things answered by the scripture. In fact, I think most things in life are not answered by the scripture. And prophecies about the future, for sure. But I'm sure you've heard of the, um, the rule of intentional ambiguity. If you haven't, well, maybe if you've heard about it, it means you've heard it from me because I don't know if anybody else uses that term. But rule of intentional ambiguity. Any good author knows that what you leave out is every bit as important as what you put in the story because what you leave out keeps them from getting sidetracked. And what you put in keeps them focused on where you're going with the story. That's, that's what this book is like. There's a lot not in here. Don't bother filling in the blanks. I think a lot of conflicts in disagreements among Christians on theological issues really isn't about what the Bible teaches. It's about how you connect the dots. Some people want to connect it this way and some people want to connect it to keep it simple. That's the best way. On one hand, you've got people who say, well, it's all very spiritual. So what? if it's, if it's weird, that must be what it means. And then you've got people on the other hands, well, we scholars don't believe that anything should be taken literally and seriously in this book. You must come to us to find out what it really means. How about we just read it, understand it, let the Holy Spirit apply it, and I think we'll be good. Number three, home is where your loved ones are and where your heart is. God is not cruel or stupid enough to mix up final destinies. He's not going to be sending people to the wrong house. You can rest assured. Somebody's not going to end up in heaven who really didn't want to be around God, who wanted to be around his friends and wanted to be around whatever his values were progressively becoming through life. Remember the story I told you about the great divorce, C.S. Lewis. Gradually, as our lives go on, we divide out. We divide out because of the choices we make, the values we reflect in those choices. And the final destinies are simply a logical, natural, and just result of that. Number four, justice and fairness are intuitive reminders of being created in God's image. 
We need not panic, despair, or get cynical. We know the God who holds the future. Oh, I like this idea of God's character. We see it in all the rest of the biblical teaching, so why wouldn't it apply here? God is just. I've had to use this many times over the years. I've used it more and more when people say, well, how can this be? How could God allow that? I don't know. I don't know. I just know that God is just. I know from what we do know that you can trust God to be just and fair. So there's nothing going to happen at the end in which God suddenly loses his mind and becomes sort of a fruitcake that rewards his friends with all these goodies and just gets really angry and punishes all the bad people that he didn't like. It's not the God in this book. The story is about a just God, a loving God, but a fair God who has a plan and a destiny laid out. He respects our boundaries. Number five, a healthy view of the future will lead to a healthy relationship to the present. Where do you stand on these diverging paths? Any changes needing, needed on the wrong path entirely? I think this is an important distinction to make. One of the problems with the subject of final judgment has been the impression some people have gotten from Christians that just so long as you got your meal ticket or your salvation ticket or your train to heaven ticket, nothing else really matters. That's why we started this out. I mentioned a quote from N.T. Wright, who was attempting to bring back into the discussion the notion that the good news isn't just so your soul can get saved and you can tell the world around you to go to hell, but so that you can live in the light. Nature, life, justice, fairness, politics, art, everything is meant to come under the story of God's redemptive plan. Now it's got to start with a personal relationship. And, and conversion experience for the individual. But that's a start. That's like a child being born. That's a great start. But you're going to move on, right? If you're still a six-week-old baby, emotionally, spiritually, and intellectually, by the time you're 36, something went desperately wrong. Oh yeah, you're still human. But something went desperately wrong in the process. That's a great start, but it's not the end. We walk in the light. We live in the light. We proclaim the light. It affects everything. And when I hear Christians say or imply, well, that doesn't affect me, that politics, that business, that arts, that entertainment, all these other things, that doesn't affect me because I'm just focused on Jesus in heaven. No, you're not. If you were really focused on Jesus and heaven, you would see that engaging the world like Jesus did is what living the gospel and walking in the light is all about. Our job is not just to throw lifesaver inner tubes to people as they're drowning. You should do that. But what you do with them after you pull them in is pretty important too, don't you think? So where are you personally on the path? Or maybe you're not even on the path. 
Maybe you're going down one path and you recognize and you ought to get on the other one. You're not truly progressing until you turn around and get on the right path. That's what a true progressive is. Somebody who's actually going the right way. Not just somebody who's chugging along. Chugging along on the wrong road. Too bad. You're, you're dead. You need to turn around sometimes and go back on the right road. That's what the Bible calls repentance. But maybe you're on the right road, but you're just blasé about it or apathetic about it. Or maybe uh, like Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress, you're just accumulating a lot of garbage along the way, so it's not going toward the path you're meant to be on. You're getting bogged down, you're stuck in the mud. That's on you. Because the solution is there. He didn't put you on that path just to abandon you and let you sink in the mud or fall through the cracks. He put you on that path so you could get to the final destiny. And if you're not moving in that direction, that's on you. He provided the resources. He provided his spirit. He provided the people. He provided the directional guidelines. He provided all that you really need to be on that path where your final destiny is heaven. Are you on that path? If not, good day to get on it. If you are and you're not moving forward, then you're moving backwards. And that's not good. Stand and join me in prayer, please. Father, we are grateful that you have intervened in this world, in our personal lives, but also in the whole world. You have a plan for human history. You have a plan for the society we live in. You have a plan for people all around the world. And we have the privilege of walking in the light and sharing that plan, engaging that plan, walking with you because our final home we know is glorious it's heavenly and we know that there are those on the other path and a final destiny is not good for them we want to be those that reach across the divide and pull them over on the right path give us a chance Lord and we'll do that but we know we have to be strong and on the right path ourselves to do it so show us how to walk that walk and Carry out the vision and the plan that you have laid out for us while we are still here. Thank you for the privilege in Jesus' name. Amen.